Beloved, please behold God's living word by turning to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. I don't really have to explain the concept of unfairness. I think we all understand it pretty clearly. We've all gone through this life uh, being treated unfair on one level or another, and perhaps in many different ways. There's small ways and there's great ways. Perhaps you haven't gotten the recognition that uh, you thought you deserved for something, or, or perhaps you, maybe you were lied about or slandered and you, you weren't able to give it a, a defense for yourself. We all know what it's like to get passed over for something that we think we're qualified for. All of us on some measure have been treated too harshly, perhaps, and unable to respond with whatever's in our heart. Uh, we know what it's like to, to want to even the scales when things are unfair. Uh, we even know what it's like uh, to want to even perhaps enact a, a revenge on those who treat us unfairly. Well, this unfairness happens in many places. We'll see it in our jobs. We see it perhaps in our marriages. We see it in relationships. We see it with the government. We see it everywhere. What Peter addresses today is the question, how are Christians to live in a world that is unfair? In fact, he takes it a step farther. How are Christians to live in a world that is unjust? What does it look like in our response? How are we to live and who are we to look to on how we are to live? Now, last week, Pastor Kurt introduced the topic through uh, the preaching of God's word of what it is to submit. Submit to uh, governing authorities and then to live a godly life in doing so. Today, we're going to look at the dynamic of submitting to masters that might be over us in this life. And we're going to kind of unpack that here momentarily. The next couple of weeks, we're going to look at what it looks like to submit in the dynamics of different relationships that we might find ourselves in. But what Peter is getting at the core here is this idea that all Christians are called to submit, to live a life of subjection under another. And as we'll see, this not only displays the character of God, uh, it is what he has called us to in this life. And beloved, remember that this is actually possible because we have been born again. God caused us to be a new people. He has brought us into a gathering of people who do not act like the people of the world, but act as the people of God who bear his character. The main idea of this passage that we're going to look at is, is pretty simple uh, today. We are called to graciously endure injustice and do good, motivated by Christ's sufferings. So the way Peter kind of breaks this down, first he, he gives us a call. We're called to endure in doing good, even when we suffer unjustly. And then, in the, in the back half of the passage that we'll look at, look at he, he points us to Christ. Uh, Christ teaches us what this actually looks like. So let's first look at this call. This is verses 18 through 20. And the first point we'll look at is this. Graciously endure while suffering unjustly. 
Now, he's writing this to servants, as you see at the very beginning of 18 there. Now, servants here does not necessarily mean slaves. He uses a different word. Doulos would be the word for slave. He uses a different slave. This is likely household servants, Uh, perhaps even freedmen who continue to serve in their master's houses simply because this is a good way to live while they are in exile. Masters were not commonly uh, Christians during this time, so that's why Peter sees it fit to only address the servants who are a part of the church. We see elsewhere in Paul's household codes, both in uh, uh, Colossians and Ephesians, that he actually addresses masters as well, but Peter doesn't seem to think that is fitting in this context. Now, when when we talk about uh, these masters... Uh, they would have perhaps uh, treated Christians unfairly simply because Christians didn't worship the gods that they worshipped. And so he, he's, he's kind of bringing this up, knowing that this is their context. Now, when we think about servitude or, or slavery, our mind uh, immediately goes uh, to our own American history. And I do want to help, uh, caution us from comparing these two things too similarly. There are certain, certain similarities, but they are different. Uh, they're different because this was considered a social class. This was a way of living. Yes, it could have been racial. Uh, yes, it could have been unfair. Uh, but it was also given to Roman citizens who could be serving both in the public sector or the private sector. Uh, or it certainly could have been exiles as well. Uh, but it's not exactly the same. And so I want to make sure that we recognize that there is an unfairness here, no doubt, an injustice, an injustice here. But I don't want us to think about slavery in the exact same way. There were, there were different rights that these slaves uh, might have had. Even being able to work for their freedom quicker than an American slave would have been able to. Now, some would have suggested, why, why didn't Peter speak against uh, servitude or slavery in this passage? I want us to remember before we get deep into the text that Peter's main objective is to make sure that he comforts Christians in certain situations not to rebuild structural societies in, uh, excuse me, structures within society. He's writing Christians to encourage them to be faithful right where God has placed them. Now, we might understand or not understand the concept of household servant in our context, but I do want us to think about uh, this as kind of a professional relationship. A lot of these servants would have been uh, running or managing properties or business, Uh, They would have been physicians or teachers. And so we might not understand the exact relationship between a master and a servant in our context, but this dynamic can be understood just one step away from our working relationships here in modern times. Uh, But even if you look at verse 19, it says, one who endures sorrows, even that little word one suggests that This is really, it's specific, but it's also general. Uh, The the idea is that we are to endure and to subject ourselves no matter what relationships we're in. Even if you work for yourself, there is some form of relationship in which you are subjected to another. And that's what Peter is, is sort of hammering home. Now, what are these servants to do? Look with me in 18. 
Servants are to be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Well, what does that mean? Well, there's not a scholar out there, certainly not a sound scholar, that believes that this word is meant to have uh, servants be afraid or respect just their master for who their master is. Uh, yes, we are called to be subject or submissive to our masters, but what seems to be the undercurrent here uh, of the text is uh, Peter gives us an idea running from verse 17 that we are to fear God. And so if we're in verse 18, we're to be subject to our masters, obey them with all respect, uh, that, that word respect means fear, the suggestion is that we are actually to fear God, and when we fear God, we then are subject to our masters. That is what motivates this relationship. And if, if we don't understand that concept from this passage, we're, we're not going to have a good time understanding the rest of the passage and the way that it flows. When we fear God, we are, we, we are choosing uh, to behave in a way that represents that respect, reverent fear of God by listening and obeying the masters that God puts over us in this life. Now, he's certainly not saying that we, we should sin if a master tells us to sin, but to be faithful in doing what they've asked us to do as long as it fits with God's moral law. And notice what the passage says there at the end of 18. No matter if the master is good and gentle or if the master is unjust, we are called to submit. So their posture doesn't divert us from our responsibility to be faithful. So we fear the Lord. And the result of fearing the Lord is serving our earthly masters. It's a way to summarize what this looks like. Now, now consider with me back in verse 13, as this section was kicked off, Peter writes, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Uh, this verse sheds light on why servants are to be subject to their masters. It's for the Lord's sake. An earthly master is not your ultimate authority. Our earthly masters do not have ultimate authority over you because Jesus is our ultimate authority. We do this for the Lord's sake. If you remember back in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, do you remember that beautiful text that says we were ransomed, we were redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ? That word ransom or redeem, that's actually slave language. We were, we were bought out of slavery and made slaves of Christ, servants of Christ. You, beloved, church of God, you have been purchased by the prince of peace. And we are loyal to him now. He is our God. We are his slaves. You remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, that you, you are not your own anymore. You have been bought with a price. And we belong to him. And so with joy, we submit ourselves because we serve the Lord who asked us to submit to the human institutions that are over us. This is why we do it. 
Uh, the second thing he says here as he's talking uh, about subjecting ourselves is looking back in verse 16, Peter says, we are to live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. I want us to consider what he's saying and, and let this kind of press into us. You might be a servant of earthly masters. You might be called to be subject to them, but you are called to do so as to the Lord. Uh, you are free, and we do this for the Lord's sake. Consider what it says in 1 Corinthians 7, 21 through 24. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who has called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. We have earthly masters in this life, but they are not our master. We have been purchased by the master who has given us a new identity, who's given us new rights and new freedoms found in him. If we submit to the Lord, beloved, we will submit to our earthly masters. Maybe I could ask it this way. How we submit, or state it this way, how we submit to earthly masters conveys whether or not we have submitted to the Lord as our master. Now, this is where the living word kind of reaches into our hearts and, and touches our sin. Because we struggle with submission, don't we? I do. I was confronted by it this week when I was studying. And Peter seems to know this. And the, the living word and the spirit knows that we don't like to submit. And so uh, it's pressing on us here. And the reason we don't like to submit and the reason we struggle with this is because we do not act as free men and women. Rather, we act as if we are enslaved to our own sinful passions. Our temptation is to be mindful of ourselves and then to respond to injustice by either justifying a poor response or enacting our own injustice. This is our natural human Instinct. Think about all the ways we do this. It's, it's prevalent in our lives. Don't you want to defend with anger and justice when someone maligns you? When someone makes fun of you, isn't your natural carnal response to tear them down so that you feel good about yourself? This is how man responds. Almost every conflict that we find ourselves in in this life is predicated upon the belief that we think that this world is about us and, uh, and, our, own, and our own thoughts and our own opinions and what's right according to our own eyes. It's true in the conflict at home, the conflict you have with your friends. Like, how, how dare you say that to me? Why, why would you ever take that away from me? Why wasn't I honored the way that I should have been honored? This is our natural response, and beloved, it's because we are rebellious people. 
people who are self-centered. And we need to be aware of our natural human response because what God is calling us to is very different. It's very, very different. I think the first place to start is perhaps with repentance, recognizing that we often try to avenge our, ourself. And that's the very opposite of what is being talked about here. Uh, we either avenge or we make, and then we make an excuse about it, do we not? Yeah, but, well, I'm just a sinner. Well, yes, we are a sinner. That's a good starting place, but we are called to something different. We are called to live a different type of lifestyle before the world. Because look what Peter says in verse 20. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? So if we sin, we should expect punishment. And there, but there's no suffering value when we do this. Our sin is often the reason that we are treated this way. Uh, when we lie to our boss, there's repercussions from it. And he's saying, don't let sin be the reason that you suffer. Uh, and don't respond sinfully when you do suffer. That, that's kind of the other side of it. There's no enduring value. There's no credit to your account when this occurs. When Peter presses in, though, what does have value? Look with me in verse 19. For this, subjecting yourselves to masters, is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. But if when you do good and suffer for it, uh, you, excuse me, but when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For this you have been called. So what is a value for the Christian? Well, the Christian response is uh, to be faithful when unjust treatment occurs. These Christians here in this context might have been beaten without cause. And what Peter says in verse 19, it's a gracious thing when mindful of God you endure sorrows when suffering unjustly. So it's a good thing when you're mistreated and you're mindful of God. That means you're thinking of God and you remember that God is caring for you even while you're, you're suffering unjustly or unfairly. This is a gracious thing. But the Christian is to go a step further. Look with me in verse 20. But when you do good and suffer for it and endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. We are not only to be mindful of God in our unjust suffering. We are actually to do good to those who are causing us to suffer. And that is where the Christian life flips the, is like flipped upside down on its head compared to the rest of the world. It's, it's different. It's other. And it says here in verse 20 that you might even suffer unjustly after you do good. So just by being subject to your master, it doesn't mean that all's going to go well for you. In fact, he might be mad at you for doing good and you might suffer for it. Whether he disagrees with your stance or uh, is jealous of your position, but it doesn't change who our master in heaven is. He is our master no matter the situation. So we are called to keep enduring good, even to our earthly masters when they are maligning, 
treating unfair, and perhaps even persecuting us for the name of Christ. And beloved, look what it says there in the text. This is precious in the sight of God. It might not feel like God is with you, but that verse right there tells us that God sees you, and it's precious to him when we endure and we do good in our enduring. And this should motivate us more than trying to get back at the masters who are unjust to us. Now, look what the first part of 21 says. For this is what you have been called to. For this, doing good as you suffer unjustly, this is what you have been called to. Think about what Peter is saying. This is radically different from the way we use calling today, right? Typically, we use the word calling. It's like the Lord's called me to this great new position, this great new opportunity, this, this, this great responsibility now where I can use my platform for greater things. But if we're going to use the word calling here in a biblical sense, he has called us to suffer unjustly. And that goes against the logic in our carnal nature. That is so different than we naturally think. He's calling us as Christians to perhaps even suffer right now unjustly as some of us are. Oftentimes we quit our jobs when we suffer unfairly. But what if it's God's purpose for our suffering to redeem the situation in some way, uh, to, to help us understand more of who Christ is and then perhaps even represent Christ more fervently and faithfully in our workplaces. Oftentimes we miss out on that because we, we get out of the heat too quickly. What if we're called to suffer unjustly? Peter is simply applying the teaching that he heard from the Lord Jesus' mouth from Luke 6. Love your enemies and to do good to those who hate you. So he's heard it from Christ and now he's applying it uh, to the church as he's applied to his own life. Do you remember in the book of Acts chapter 7, Stephen is being stoned after he preached the whole counsel of God to the, to the Jewish synagogue there. And they begin to stone him. And what, is, what does Stephen do in response? He says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. He's doing good as they're persecuting him. They're, he's, he's praying for them even as they do vile acts against him. And the apostle Paul remembers this because he recalls it in Acts chapter 22. He, he, he remembers holding the garments of those who are killing Stephen. He remembers the faithfulness of Stephen. There's a young lady in our church who's recently going through some suffering. Beloved, believe it or not, suffering unjustly is among us, even for those who bear the name of Christ already, as it, as it says in 1 Peter 4.14. Talking to this young lady uh, recently, and she has been fired because of her Christian belief amongst us, in, in, our, in our place. And I, I talked to her this week, and she said that I could use her as an example. Uh, she certainly uh, began uh, asking questions as to why this was the case, but it was only returned with, 
uh, making fun of what her belief in Christ was. And uh, they, uh, they gave her a two-week notice, and my wife and I marveled as she testified to how she responded to it. Her flesh said, I really wanted to just not go back to work. But do you know what she did? She faithfully served those two weeks, and in fact, she extended it recognizing they were down a person. She did not revile. She kept doing her job, and she bore the name of Christ while she did it. Sometime soon, I think we're going to have the opportunity for her to share that testimony with us when she's ready, but it's meant to encourage us that this, this isn't just some far-off land in ancient Turkey. This is on our doorsteps. And many of us will walk through these in the days ahead. And, and this is an important lesson for, for us to understand. To make sure that we recognize that we serve the master. And he has given us responsibility to respond the way that he wants us to respond. Just a couple of application questions for us. Beloved, write this down. Do you believe that God's ways are better than your ways? Edmund Clowney, a theologian, says, what a privilege it is for his people to imitate the magnificence of their father's mercy. That is our responsibility, is to represent the father's mercy. Do you believe that God's ways are better than your ways, that he can see things that you cannot see? Number two, how is it that you are able to be subject to being treated unfairly? Well, he says here, being mindful of God, not on earthly masters, not on yourself, but by being mindful of God. So a follow-up question to that is, is your work or are your relationships, are they centered on Christ? Do you go to work because you belong to Christ? Or do you go to work and you happen to believe in Christ? It's a very different question. What is the purpose of, of your relationships? Because if it's for Christ, if you go with a mindset of centered on the gospel, then there is grace, there is patience, there's endurance as you walk this out. And that's what endurance means. This, this faithful endurance means to bear under it, to, to stay the course within it. And we can only do that when we are mindful of God who for his sake made us his people and we represent him to the world around us. Now, why have we been called to this? We have been called to this because Christ died for us and we are now his people reflecting his character to the nations. That's what Peter's trying to get them to see and so uh, this serves as the motivation for the example he gives us in 21 through 25. And that's the second point. This, this motivation that we have is rooted in Christ. So number two, entrusting ourselves to God who judges justly. Picking up in 21, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So, so Peter explains how we should be motivated by Christ's sufferings. There's two reasons he gives us that Christ's suffering should motivate us. Number one, Peter says that Christ suffered for you, church, and that should be enough. 
And number two, Peter says that Christ suffered, leaving us an example to follow. So Christ dying both is for our salvation and then also for our standard for living. And so let's look at those for just a second because both of them deal with God dealing with sin. Uh, All unjust trespasses, everything that you've done and everything that anyone has ever done against you will be dealt with. And that is what Peter is hammering home here. Look with me in 21. Christ suffered for you. First, it's our salvation. That's the reason he suffered. He is our substitution. And he explains this actually in verses 24 and 25. He said, he, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And by his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like uh, straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. It says here that Jesus bore our sins on the tree. Every little white lie, Every malicious scheming, every lustful thought, every uh, uh, opportunity to partake in greed, it was placed on his body when he was on the tree. He didn't have any sin. There was no deceit found in his mouth, but he bore our guilt. He took on our condemnation in his body. It says later on in chapter 3, verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So Christ brings us to God. He, He purchases us, he buys us, he bought us, and then he brings us to the Father. And he does this, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness that we might begin responding to injustice faithfully, that we might be living a life that looks a lot like his. And and beloved, if we want justice, if we want real justice for our lives, then we get hell. We get death. We don't want justice. We 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 don't want any part of that because of the wrath of God against sin is significant. So much so that his only begotten son bore it in his body for us. That's just not just some easy substitution. That is a significant substitution that reveals to us the very heart of our God. The glory of God, the love of God in his heart. And and look at the language that he uses in 24 and 25. Peter is quoting from, from Isaiah 53, and honestly, he's celebrating. He's celebrating who Christ is. Isaiah 53, but he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Beloved, through Christ's suffering, we are healed there is no longer a barrier between us and the living God. There is no more debt to pay. You have been bought. You are free. You are in him. And he uh, brought you back to God, as it says in 3.18, and then look what the language, he returned you to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. 
shepherd. He brought you back to the senior pastor, Christ Jesus the Lord, who guards your heart. You don't have to be attracted to sin anymore. You don't have to live as you would have the day before you met Christ. You get to live righteously because Christ bought you with his own righteousness. And he brings you near to the shepherd. And all that attractiveness towards sin is destroyed. And he allows us to to live faithfully. Jesus provides the means of now this new fellowship with God. He returns us to the shepherd. He protects us like a shepherd protects sheep from wolves. And he cares for us as we suffer unjustly. As we suffer unjustly, he sees it. And he cares for us. And we have this new life-giving relationship in Jesus Christ that truly breaks the attractiveness of sin. So take heart and know that God does deal with injustice. And our injustices, our trespasses have been dealt with. And Jesus bore those for us. And that should motivate us. Those who understand that our injustices injustices against God that we've committed, have been laid on the precious blood of the lamb, have been laid on the body of the unblemished lamb, we can now be patient with those who ridicule us or who are unjust to us. We get the action that God has given towards us. And it trains us. It does this sweet work of training us to be patient with those who would make us suffer. And we remember that God, that God thinks seriously about injustice, so seriously that he was willing to crush his own son. In fact, our little responses to injustice uh, are not enough for the injustices that we incur. So be patient, endure. He cares greatly about injustices, so much so that yours are taken care of in the body of his own son, And then that kind of leads us into our final little thought today. Christ also provides us the standard for Christian living. How do we handle when others sin against us? He leads us, leaves us an example in verse 21. Christ himself is the illustration for for Peter. He's the illustration for us. Look in verse 22. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Jesus did not sin. There was no deceit. Nor did anything ever come out of his mouth that was not the perfect and holy law of God. And yet he suffered. And and look as he was suffering... How Jesus responds, Luke 23, he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't even know what they're doing. They're unaware that they have trespassed. They're they're unaware of their own sinfulness. God, forgive them. This is a great glimpse into the mercy and the character of our Lord who who, who empathizes and who, who loves his Brothers, and who wants all people to be saved. He wants them not to sin anymore. He doesn't want them to be held accountable for what they did. 
How do you do this? How do we respond with the mindfulness of God and, and forgive others who sin against us just as Jesus has? Because we want justice again, remember? We want to take matters into our own hands. But Christ does not do that. Verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he threatened, he did not threaten. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Isaiah 53, when rejected, he did not open his mouth. Verse 7. Matthew 5, remember what Jesus taught, love your enemies and do good to those who persecute you. Jesus is actually living this out. He's the example. Romans 12, 14, bless those uh, who curse you and do, and do not do evil against them. Jesus is the example of this. And the question that comes up in our head is how did he do this? And I think an answer is provided at the end of 23. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus was the example because his mind stayed on the Father no matter what suffering was going on in his life. He kept entrusting himself to the Father's plan. He kept believing that the Father's plan was greater, knowing that glory and judgment were coming. He did not retaliate. Matthew 26, 26 said he could have retaliated. When he's being arrested in the garden, he, he tells those who are arresting him, I could have called 12 legions or more of angels. A legion of angels is 6,000 angels to come make this situation right. That's, I'm terrible at math. That's 72,000 angels who would have made sawdust of the soldiers who were arresting Jesus. But he didn't. He kept entrusting himself to the one who he knew would bring justice. To the one he, who, who knew he knew would make all things right. Romans 12, 19 through 20 says, Beloved, near of, uh, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. In fact, he says to the contrary, verse 20, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Where do you get the strength to feed your enemy when he is getting away with injustice? Beloved, leave it to the wrath of God and do good to him. Do good to those who persecute you. And to be honest with you, I think one of the great obstacles that we face in this life is we don't actually believe that justice will be done. We don't actually believe that God is going to make all things right uh, beloved, justice will be done. In fact, it says in Second Peter, the next book we'll get into, chapter 3, verse 7, that the heavens and earth are being stored up for fire that will come upon them on the day of the Lord. God will do it. You don't have to. You can therefore return good for, for evil. And if they don't repent, if they don't repent, the wrath of God remains on them. But if they do repent in time, I want you to remember that they are like you, sinners who are saved by grace because Christ bore our sins on the tree. We often parachute, pull that parachute tab pretty quickly when injustice is uh, upon us. We like wave the flag like an NFL ref. 
Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't? Aren't you glad he didn't call down the 12 legions of angels? He could have, but he didn't. And because he didn't, you and I are now free men and women, saved by the blood of Christ, able to live like this, open hands, like like Paul, who's like suffering as he's writing the book of Romans. He's like, I don't compare these uh, afflictions that I'm going through to the glories of heaven that await me. That's, it doesn't make sense to us in the, in the flesh, but when we put the gospel lens to it, it's like it does make sense because who we now are in Christ and what we're getting is far, far better. And he's given us an example, a way to uh, allow us to see how we are to live in this life. Just a very quick uh, few moments of takeaways. Number one, admit that you have been called to suffer unjustly. Part of this is just recognizing that the Christian who bears the name of Christ is having the character of God worked out in them. Since you've been bought and brought into his kingdom, now you're displaying the character of God to the the world around you, and this is God's plan for us. And I think the first step is just to admit this, Um, just remembering that, you know, our sin is dealt with. We can keep handing over justice to the Father, knowing that he will make things right, even when you're maligned, even when you lose your job, even when someone in the hallway says something to you that feels unfair. We can hand these things over. Number two, consider that Jesus understands injustice. He understands it far better than you because he was spotless and perfect. Hebrews 4.15, we have a sympathetic high priest. And then this high priest intercedes for us all the time. All hours of the day, even while you sleep, he is praying for you now and he is praying for you always. Number three, trust that your good works are gracious in the sight of the Father. But also trust that Christ's work is the most pleasing to the Father. It's taken care of, all of it, and it will be if it hasn't been. So trust that the Father sees and trust that the Father accepted the work of Christ. And number four, remember that your life can be or can have, rather, a redemptive effect in the life of a non-believer. When we, remember what it says in in, uh, chapter two, verse 12? Uh, that your life can actually have a non-believer ultimately rejoice at the coming of Christ based on the way that you live. There can be fruit that comes based on how you respond to injustice. It often doesn't make sense to a watching world why we would continue to love, why why we would continue to do good, but it can have a redemptive effect. And so let's not get in the way of that. Let's not let our sin be a reason they call us hypocrites. Let's let's continue to entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have been merciful to us. Father, thank you that you have taught us through your son how to respond to the injustices of this world. Father, you have shown us, uh, Father, what it looks like to be patient, what it looks like to endure, 
what it looks like to, uh, Father, do good, just as Christ did good, just as Christ endured. Father, thank you that you've given us an example. Now, Father, make us strong to be able to be faithful, representing your character faithfully to the watching world, God. Father, may, may we rise up and, and suffer for the name of Christ if that's what you call us to do. Father, because you say that those who do are blessed. Father, help us to see this. In Christ's name we pray, amen.